This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Inglis, number one in its field. Part two of our podcast with Steve King, and we're talking about his unforgettable win in 1991 in the Melbourne Cup on Let's Elope. Well, the whole of Australia was talking about this mare coming into the Cup. She'd come out of nowhere, Steve. I mean, all of a sudden she was headlines, wasn't she? It was an amazing entry into big-time racing for this big, gangly daughter of Nassapur. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, she, she burst on the scene, but all of a sudden she's pretty much unbeatable. Uh, you know, you've got the way she's going into it off the McKinnon win. Mm. You've got, you know, JB coming straight in so really she had all the ticks except yep. for S. King probably because he's, <laughs> he's probably the, uh, the question mark as far as experience is concerned. But um, I can tell you now, John, I was very focused and uh, yeah. I was going out there to win that race. She had 51 kilos. All of the, the form students, the serious punters, thought she was unbeatable. And talking to you now, it sounds as though you felt the same. Yeah, look, I just thought, you know, the only way she was going to get beat, if, if I put her in a position where she was going to be beaten. And mm. I was very conscious of that. I knew her very well. I knew her well now. I knew, you know, she was a big mare. Mm. She did need room. Uh, she had a great turn of foot. You know, my job was to keep her out of trouble and basically give her a chance to use that turn of foot uh, with no weight in her back. And I thought if I can do that, there's no reason why she can't win it. You were very patient. You drew barrier 10 at the winning post the first time. You were one off the fence, cluttered up between horses, though. You didn't appear to be getting a lot of room with a lap to go, and she had about half a dozen behind her at that point. Yeah, look, I mean, these two-mile races like the Melbourne Cup and so forth, as long as you put them to sleep and get a good rest between the barriers uh, and the time you get to the, probably the sort of 1,200 mm. or the 1,000 from home, yeah. you can pretty much just be quite cruisy. And, uh, and knowing her and the turn of foot she had, I just knew that I could be patient and as long as I had room from the 1,000 or the 1,200 onwards, uh, she would get a chance to use the acceleration. Yeah. Well, you tracked into it on the back of other horses from about the 800, moved into it nicely on the turn. They did shove you a bit deep right on the corner, but you you were not perturbed because you knew that mare would relish and appreciate some open air. Exactly. I knew when I let her go, she could could find five or six lengths very quickly. So once we sort of came in a bend, I knew I had five or six lengths of of turn a foot on her and basically just, just give her plenty of room, let her cruise into it, and it was up to me when I decided I wanted to use it. And uh, that, that's how the race panned out. I straightened up, mm. cruised up to him. I let her down. She always had a tendency to lay in. Um, yeah. Uh, she always did that. Nearly every run she had, she always sort of rolled back to the inside. Mm. And I was able to sort of let her, let her down. Even though she was, she was wanting to lay in a little bit, I was able to use that turn of foot and put a bit of a space on them. Well, it wasn't without incident because it, it got rough in the straight. There was obvious trouble. There was a protest against you by the runner-up Shiver's Revenge. And even though you were absolutely sky high after the race at 22 years of age, it was your birthday, in fact, you copped a six-week suspension. Yeah, well... 
that was a little bit unfortunate. There was a, there's a few uh, instances in that in that interference. I mean, uh, there's no doubt that Shane Dyes now did come out, and obviously I did get in. So mm. back in those days, when the stewards looked at interference, if there was circumstances that that came to hand as far as two or three horses were involved, um, you wouldn't lose the race. But certainly, I copped a decent suspension, and I remember the next day sitting there saying, "You know, just won a Melbourne Cup." There was a, there was a, uh, and actually back now you read the paper to see what everyone's saying about you, seeing if they're giving you a, a, you know, a rap or not. And uh, mm. there was a little cartoon down the corner and it had a, had me carrying a, a wheelbarrow full of cash off on holidays. So I thought that was quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> and I was pretty happy. I was pretty happy, happy John. I mean, everything, my expectations, you know, I'd reached my expectations. I got the job yeah. done. Yeah, it wasn't pretty, but in the day I got the job done. The chief sufferer in that interference, and I shouldn't bring it up in case he's listening, was our old mate Kevin Moses, who rode a horse called Dr Grace, a very good horse too. And, uh, mate, he, I don't know how he stayed on. <laughs> yeah, no, it's terrible. I, um, Kevin came up to me and said, look, mate, he said, don't worry, it's, it wasn't your fault, it was the inside coming out. So mm. when you look at the replay, it looks like I'm the one that probably caused it, but you can't actually see Shane Dye coming out and Shiver's revenge off the fence. So mm. uh, Kevin Moses always told me it was Dye's that got him, not me. So I'm happy to go with that. <laughs> yeah, I'd stick with that. Well, uh, the horse went for a spell, obviously, and it came back to win the CFO stakes and the St George stakes with you on board, naturally. Then you copped another suspension. Yeah, I copped two months in the St George for improper riding. So uh, unfortunately, I missed the Australian Cup. And as you know, you know, she was probably unbeatable in the Australian Cup. She had a perfect preparation again. She um, and back to Flemington, uh, it was a massive win. Hurt me a little bit, but you know that's racing. You have your ups and downs, and. Uh, you know, I was disappointed. I missed the ride, probably one of my biggest disappointments, but that's the way it goes. Darren Biedman was the lucky one to get on. She won by three and a half lengths in that Australian Cup, and as you said, she was just on the day awesome. She had yeah, another exactly. spell after that, Steve, and you had one more ride on her in the Rupert Steel. Yeah, well, obviously she wasn't going to win that, but uh, no, look, it was it was fantastic and you know, I, I've got to give her a lot of credit because she she created my resume and she gave me the opportunity to travel and, and so mm. forth. So she was really the benchmark for for probably my name. Mm. Mick Dittman won a race on her after that at Caulfield. Then she ran fifth in the Cox Plate, won by Superimpose. That was the very roughly run Cox Plate. Darren Biedman rode her in the Japan Cup in which she was unplaced. And then the owner, Dennis Marks, decided to take her to the United States and gave her to a trainer whom I met on a couple of occasions, Ron McAnally, who trained at Santa Anita. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's right. She went overseas to race, and um, I uh, that was the last time. You know, I actually went up to a, to Yoroa and seen with my kids. I took the kids up there probably just before she passed away. Mm. And she was out in the back in some paddock, being a nanny for all the yearlings, so... Uh, it was great for my three boys to go and meet her and, and pat her and so forth. So, yeah, that no, was great. A wonderful, wonderful mare. Let's elope. And as Stephen King admits himself, the one that kick-started his career. You didn't ride extensively for Bart Cummings after the Let's Elope era, but you did win a Stradbroke for him on Never Under Charge, 
you won an Australian Cup on Dane Ripper. And when we talk about the great mares of the last 25 years, gee, she's got to be right up there. What a bonnie mare she was. She won a Cox Plate. Yeah, exactly. No, she was uh, great. I had the opportunity to get on her and um, and win the Australian Cup, which was fantastic. Um, You know, I've been very blessed to be lucky enough to have been on some of the greats. Your Hong Kong connection started in the early 1990s and for six years you were back and forth riding winners in Hong Kong and here in Australia. I think you loved the stimulating competition in Hong Kong, didn't you? Yeah, I did, John. I mean, I, I sat down after I won the Cup and that same year I won the Derby and so forth and I'd really achieved a lot here in Australia at that stage at a young age, even though I could have you know, stayed on here. It just gave me an opportunity to sort of maybe go and experience other things and I went to Hong Kong for a three-month stint and absolutely loved it. I mean, it was very exciting. Uh, so for the next six years, I went back and forth and, and pretty much spent sort of most of that time moving around a bit. So uh, it was great. It was fantastic. And uh, as I said earlier, Let's Love probably gave me that resume to do it. You got to ride one of the best horses in the colony in the shape of Fairy King Prawn. In fact, you won five races on him, including a couple of Group 1s. He was unsound, Steve. He was, John. He was, um, he was a beautiful horse. He, uh, he, when I went to Ricky Hughes to ride for Ricky Hughes, he stable jockey. Um, he was down in the ratings at that stage. He hadn't really achieved much. And I started riding him work. And I said to Ricky, this, this horse is a serious horse. And, um, you know, as time went on, he was unsound. But Ricky did, did a fantastic job. We kept him on his feet. And, mm. and lucky enough, he... Um, he was able to win a, a Hong Kong sprint for the first local trainer, so a uh, bit of a feather in the cap and mm. you know, those sorts of things I love being involved with. Strangely enough, he's, he's probably best remembered by Australian racing fans for a defeat, and that was his close second to Sunline in the 2000 Hong Kong Mile. I think Robbie Frad rode him that day. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, no, he took her on and... As I said, he was a, he was an outstanding horse. He he wasn't sound, so he was a day to day proposition. But did a fantastic job to keep him up on his feet. There's another horse you rode who provided you with a great conversation piece at dinner parties, and I'll bet you've used it more than once. Maccabi Diva, she won eight yeah. Group Ones. You had three rides on the Great Mare for two wins, Steve. You won a Turnbull and a Memsey, both Group Two. Yeah, that's correct. Um, what happened was in that year, I um, well, Bossy was trying to win the, the most group ones in the season and mm. I was involved with Lee Freeman, obviously doing a bit of riding for Lee. And, mm. uh, you know, Bossy uh, nicked off to Sydney a couple of times and I, Lee said to me, look, you know, you can ride and look after it for Bossy, which I was very happy to do. So mm. I was a little, a little bit of a part, played a little bit of a part in it. So I was very appreciative as far as being involved with the great mayor and, you know, she was fantastic. She was um, similar to Let's Lope, half the size of Let's Lope, but certainly had a turn of foot like her. And, mm. and um, no, outstanding mare. What a, what a great mare. Gee, when you look back on your career in racing, fancy having the opportunity to ride two mares like that. Yeah, certainly. Uh, very proud of it, John. I mean, you know, you look back, like you're saying, they say you've been involved with Let's Lope and Maccabi Diva. Um, yeah, no, very lucky boy, very lucky. And Costa de Lago had only eight starts for three wins. 
and you rode him in all three, the Ascot Vale, the Vic Health Cup and the Bill Stutt, and I'll bet you would never have dreamed what sort of a stallion he was going to make later. Uh, certainly not. Um, it was a shame his career ended because I'm, I'm sure he would have uh, clocked up a lot more group ones than what he did. But no, he was an outstanding horse, beautiful looking horse, great nature, um, great to ride, like a kid's pony he was. He, um, was he? He just knew what he had to do. And once again, you know, he had that great turn of foot. And uh, no, it was a shame his career came to an end a bit too early. And he produced horses like Chautauqua, Sacred Kingdom, Pacini, English, and Road to Rock, just to name a few. You rode a horse yeah. called Hellenus almost exclusively in an 18-start career. He won three Group 1s, Caulfield Guineas, Victoria Derby, and Rose Hill Guineas, and he also won an Amy Vars and the Bill Stutt Stakes, and you were on him in all of them, I think. Yeah, that's correct. Um, he was a bit of a difficult sort of horse, Hellenus. He, uh, he had a mind of his own. He decided in a race when he wanted to go, he'd throw the head up and sort of take control here. So he was, he was a little bit difficult, but he was a fantastic horse. Um, Leon did a great job with him. Uh, at his peak, you know, he, he, when he won the Caulfield Guineas, the day he beat Bella Spreen out, I thought he was unbeatable. And, um, you know, he was a great horse when he was on song. He came back and he, he obviously won the Derby and came back and won the Rose Hill Guineas. But at that time, he was probably on the way down. And mm. uh, But he was a fantastic horse. Here's another conversation piece for dinner parties. You won a Group 1, a Futurity Stakes, in fact, on Scalacci. That's correct, yeah. No, I think I was the first one to win on a 1,400-metre race on the on the great grey horse. Um, he was a beautiful, big, kind horse. Uh, Caulfield, probably 1,400, was perfect for him because you were able to get him up and get a soft lead on him and, and give him a chance to run the 1,400. And that day, uh, you know, he, he just he, he won it easily. And, uh, no, he was a fantastic big horse. You won a Sydney Cup for Lee Friedman on a horse called Count Chivas. But it's interesting to note the seconds you ran on the same horse, second in a Mercedes Classic, second to Saintly in the 96 Melbourne Cup and second in a Sandown Cup. And I think you rode him in a big one in Hong Kong too, ran about fifth. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, well, it's the, the Melbourne Cup is probably the more profile one, but I remember jumping out that day and following Saintly and... Um, I was really happy. I mean, I went around, I think I was about a 40 to 1 shot, but I was really happy in the run. Um, followed Saintly into the straight, and I thought to myself at the time, I thought, well, I'm following the right horse and the right jockey here. Uh, you know, I knew my old horse would get two miles, so I thought, well, if Saintly sort of doesn't run the two mile, I'll just peel off his back and go straight past him. But uh, when I got in the straight and Beedman said to Saintly, let's go, well, then that was the end of it. He put about five on me in about two mm. strides, but... To, to count Shivers' credit, he kept whacking away and uh, we held down second, so that was fantastic. While we're on Lee Friedman-trained horses, you had three rides on Flying Spur. You won an all-age stakes on him. Uh, you won a couple of Group 1s on Gold Ace, a, a Galaxy and a Salinger. You won a Stradbroke on Dana Singer. And that was only a couple of months after you ran second on him in the Doncaster, won by Sprint by. And I think you bunged in a protest that day. Yeah, well, that year, I remember, well, what happened was, in 96, Lee rang, I was riding in Hong Kong, and Damien Oliver decided he'd go over to um, 
to Hong Kong and write for David Hayes and Lee said to me, look, are you interested in coming back to Australia and doing a bit of riding for me? He said, I've got, obviously, I've got Lloyd Williams' horses here, which Greg Hall will be riding, but mm-hmm. pretty much there'll be an awful lot of opportunities there for yourself if you want to come back. And I thought, well, yeah, why not? I'll come back and I'll give it a go. And I, I remember standing in the middle of Flemington and I think it was Greg Hall, myself and Lee standing there and I think Lee had about... 12 individual group one horses walking around us in a circle and I thought geez we've got some, we've got some good stock here and sure enough that year 12 group one yeah. yeah there would have been at least 12 individual Gosh. group one winners walking around us there mm. was Mahogany and Count Shivers and Flying Spur Gold Ace and Costa Light. there were so many of them so from a jockey's point of view it was fantastic the 2019 English Australian Broodmare and Weanling Sale and the Chairman's Sale were an overwhelming success the chairman's sale ended with a clearance rate of 92% and an average of over $427,000, a record for a Southern Hemisphere sale. On a memorable evening at Riverside, four mares sold for a million or more, two of them selling for two million or more, and they were Maastricht Dam of Loving Gabby and dual Group 1 winning mare Srikandi while a further seven sold for $500,000 or more. Lot one, a trapeze artist breeding right for next season, made $105,000 for injured jockey Ty Angland, who was present at the sale with his wife Erin. The two days of select and general race fillies and brood mares averaged over $42,000 with a clearance rate of 76%. Select Weanlings averaged $36,000 with an 85% clearance. The four-day sale grossed almost $40 million. You'll find the full sales results and information on upcoming sales on inglis.com.au. You won two Group 1 sprints on Regimental Gal for Sean Dwyer. Uh, That was the Lightning and the Australia Stakes. And what about this old marvel? Fields of Omar. 45 starts, 13 wins, 15 placings and 6.5 million. He was truly an old marvel. Yeah, he was tough. He was tough. I mean, he was another one that had a lot of issues, but, um, you know, he just refused to go down and he loved the strat there at Mooney Valley, um, but he was one tough old boy and, he just kept coming up year after year. He just kept coming up, and uh, you know that's a true sign of a champion. Horse mm. keep bringing him back, and he kept get, getting up and kept going. So um, he was an outstanding old horse, old field, and as I said, you know he gave me an opportunity to win a Cox Plate, which is if you look at the races, you know that's the best weight for age championship going around. I think. Yeah, well, you won the first of his two Cox Plates, two thousand and three, and it was three years later when he won his second one. Yeah, well, honestly, I didn't think he'd come back and get the second. I um, I thought the one was good enough for the old horse, but, you know, that just shows how tough he was. He came back and he got the second one. So uh, mm. I underestimated how tough he was. Well, my great mate Brian Martin was a part owner of Fields of Omar and he called him in all of those big wins. And to this day, I don't know how he did it. No, nah, it certainly would have been a tough one. You could imagine how excited he was probably getting... Uh, when it was coming around the turn and old fields and put his head in front, but uh, no, nah, it would have been a great thrill for him. You won your first and only Melbourne Jockeys Premiership. I think it was in the 96-97 season. Steve, yep. I know you can't eat Premierships, but it's nice to have one, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, exactly. Um, you know, I was sort of always one. I, I did move around a lot. Uh, I was wrapped to win one. Um, you know, it's one of those things you love to put in the cabinet, but um, mm. to try and keep backing up every year, year in, year out, trying to win them, it, it's pretty competitive and pretty tough out there. And uh, at the time, I was more focused on that. Uh, Chasing carnivals and, and chasing the big the big feature races. The icing on the cake was the night you were the recipient of the highly prized Scobie Breezley Medal. Yeah, no, great thrill. Uh, mainly, you know, the fact that Scobie was alive when he presented it to me, the relationship he had with Pop. Uh, you know, the fact that uh, you know he was a good mate of Pop's. It certainly added to it, and. Uh, as I said, it was a great thrill to win it. I won it once. They're not easy to win. Um, you know, it's a long, a long racing season. Um, so now it's just, it was great to win it, and uh, certainly I cherish it. Has horse racing in this country ever had a better ambassador than Scobie Breezley? No, exactly. He's been he was fantastic for us, wasn't he? And um, you know, to, to go and travel like Scobie did, he was you know, once again he travelled a lot too. So. Uh, you know, the profile of Scobie is massive, isn't it? Whenever I've asked you to nominate the jockeys you most admired through your career, you never fail to give Greg Hall an honourable mention. Yeah, well, Greg Hall was, you know, from from a young fellow, watch, looking up, you know, you look at you, and I was blessed to be able to ride with some of the greats. Uh, they were the next generation above me. Um, but in saying that, you know, your Greg Halls and your Mick Dittmans and so forth, you know, I remember just sitting back, watched them in, in awe of, of how successful they were and how strong they were in the finish. And you certainly knew you were in a race with them, put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Greg Hall had the perfect temperament to be a Group 1 jockey. Yeah, he did. He was just very, um, you know, he'd get out there. I think once once the barriers opened, he, he knew the job was on. So, uh, you know, you look at those guys, they get the job done, and, and that's mm. what people wanted. You know, they want, they want the job done. So, uh, you know, it's, it's tough business. You know, Greg was almost as relaxed under pressure as Harry White. The famous story persists that they had to wake Harry up in the jockey's room to get him outside to, to be legged on to think big in the 74 Melbourne Cup. Sound asleep. Yeah, yeah no, I've heard that one. That's a fantastic <laughs> story, isn't it? Um, doesn't surprise me, though. It certainly doesn't surprise me. I remember sitting sitting there watching Harry White in those days, and, and back in those days you could smoke in the, in the jockey's room and he'd be sitting there sucking on his big cigar. He was always by himself. He was always a bit of a loner. But um, you'd sit there and watch him and he'd be sitting there sucking in his cigar. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was quite funny. Oh, he was a character. Well, <laughs> you and Leanne have three fine boys. Jordan, who's the right build for a jockey but isn't interested. Ben, who's five foot ten and middle son Lachlan, who is one of Australia's most talented apprentices. Was he always going to be a jockey? Um, well, as, I, as you said, I mean, the first boy, Jordan, he's got the beautiful build to be one, but he, uh, he said to me early on, he said, Dad, I don't understand, you know, you spend all day running around in circles. <laughs> Did I don't know how you do it. So I knew straight away he had no, no chance of being a <laughs> jockey. Uh, and Lockie, well, Lockie's... Um, He's always had the beautiful build, very competitive, uh, loves sport. He was always the one that I thought, yep, yeah, he's probably a, a chance of being one. And young Benny's obviously too tall. But, mm. but Lock, you know, Lockie's got a long way to go yet. He's still early in his career and um, he's doing a really good job. Uh, it's a mm. tough game. Uh, I've explained to you in that. But, 
you know, you just have to keep fighting for it and keep working hard. And as time goes on, um, you know, I'm sure his resume will start building up. You were very conscious of the sort of pressure Lachlan was going to be under if you placed him with a high-profile trainer at Flemington or Caulfield. And you did something that turned out to be a masterstroke. You sent him up to the high country at Mansfield with a bloke called Gerald Egan, old school and an extraordinary horseman in his own right. That's correct, yeah. I I thought to myself, look, there there was two or three options. Um, Obviously, I know John Maas very well, and he he had his stable up in Queensland. I I know uh, Pat Carey very well, a very close family friend. So it was a tough call, but I just felt that, you know, from my point of view and Lockheed's point, he needs to go up the bush and, and just get away from the CBD area. And I, I really was keen for him to, to go into it and love the actual animal and get to know the animal. Um, and Gerald Egan's got that, that set up up there where they're a long way from home, um, pretty much cutting the apron string from his mum a little bit, throwing him up the bush. Uh, and I think it's been a great move for Lachlan because, you know, he went up there and, and Gerald taught him how to ride basically from scratch mm. and, and how to love the animal and and it's been the best move for Lachlan long term, I think. I think Lachlan will look back one day and say, yep, that, that worked for me. A mm. little bit about Gerald Egan. Uh, he's got a remarkable background. I mean, he really is the equivalent of a Monty Roberts uh, in one sense and he's done a lot of uh, training and educating of horses for movie roles and Gerald himself, I believe, appeared in that famous movie, The Man from Snowy River. Yeah, that's correct. He was. He was one of the stuntmen in The Man from Snowy River. Um, he uh, he is a very good horseman, uh, very well respected in, in Victoria, I'm sure, around the world, if people knew what what he's achieved. Um, and, and, you know, that, that, that was a great thing for Lockie to go up there and just learn hands-on about the animal. Uh, Mm. You know, Gerald's the sort of guy that would just throw you on and say, all right, go and learn. So that that was a good thing about it. So um, I think as time goes on, Lockie and him have got a great relationship. He still goes up there, even though he's down in Melbourne now, Lockie, but he still goes up to Gerald's and mm. and uh, loves being up there. So uh, it's a great environment for kids. He did what you did and outrode his country claim before he came to town. Yep, that's correct. Yeah, he pretty much uh, got, got knocked his country claim out the way, up the bush. Uh, learned his trade up there, and now he's moved to Melbourne. And look, you know, it takes time to, to build up connections and network and so forth, but slowly it's starting to happen, and, and I'm sure as time goes on, he'll, um, you know, he'll really take off. He hadn't ridden a city winner when, in May of 2017, he was selected by Racing Victoria to represent Australia in the Longines Pre-Future Racing Stars event at Chantilly, in France. Others before him included Beau Mertens and Talia Hope, Jessica Payne, Pat Maloney. You didn't go with him? No, I didn't go. No, I stayed home. Um, I think it's a fantastic opportunity as a kid to get now to go over, overseas and represent, you know, represent Australia. It's great for their resume, great experience and, uh, you know, they do a fantastic job with the kids down. You know, they really give them great support. So, uh, no, he, he loved it. He enjoyed it. Uh, now he's got to get back here and focus on his riding here in, in, in Oz. Yeah, he had no luck in the race. He finished back on a horse called Iron Stone, but that didn't matter. A hell of no. an experience for a kid of that age. Exactly, exactly. So now he's got to get back to Victoria now, and, and which he is, and now he's, um, he's focused on uh, 
building up his resume and getting himself going. You've obviously played a major tutorial role here with Lockie. You can't go to every race meeting because of your commitments at Macedon Lodge, but you'd be seeing every one of them on Sky Racing. Yeah, I don't get too involved with his with his uh, racing as far as at the track itself. I just stay away. I think it's important that I'm not involved in that way. Um, I'm here on the phone every day. We speak every day and we go through his rides as far as afterwards, you know, what we could have done better or so forth. So I'm sort of an off-track coach um, behind yeah. the scenes. Um, so, no, he's doing a good job. And, I mean, look, as I said, he's a long way to go yet, but, you know, he's only a kid and I'm, I'm aware of that. So, uh mm. You know, you've got to make him a jockey, not necessarily just an apprentice. He's ridden for several leading stables. Hayes, Hayes and Dabenig have been very strong supporters. Yeah, he's getting good support from a lot of uh, you know, trainers and, um, you know, at the end of the day, he's doing a good job, but he's got to keep working on it. Uh, he's going to make mistakes still, all kids do, uh, mm. even, even seniors do. So uh, I'm very conscious of that, but no, he's doing a really good job. And does your dad, Albie, go to the races to watch him, or is he a Sky Racing viewer too? No, he's he's on TV too. So uh, mm. he uh, he watches. I think he watches every ride he has. He, I don't think he misses the ride, so he loves it. So uh, it gives, mm. gives him an interest. Well, you've you're rapidly approaching the very important milestone of fifty. As I said in the intro, you were certainly one of the best of your generation. Now, just one final question. When you're bowling around at Macedon Lodge on a crisp, clear morning on one of those expensive imported Melbourne Cup hopefuls of Lloyd Williams, does the thought ever cross your mind that you might have one more crack at this caper before you're too old? Uh, Look, John, the head says yes, but uh, the heart says no. I think it's time and uh, I'm very happy with the decision I made. You had a wonderful career, and by golly, you've got so many highlights to look back on. I don't know if you're a dinner party animal, uh, but if you are, you'd, you'd hold the floor. <laughs> no, I had a great career, John, and as I said, I'm very uh, happy with the decision I made to move on, give Lockie a chance to get out there and make a life for himself now. Uh, I'm still involved, I'm still involved. Uh, I still pop up on the way, but uh, mm. I'm, certainly, I'm certainly happy to move on. Steve King, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you about a great career and uh, I appreciate all your time uh, on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, John. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. The 2019 Inglis Australian Broodmare and Weanling Sale and the Chairman's Sale were an overwhelming success. The chairman's sale ended with a clearance rate of 92% and an average of over $427,000, a record for a Southern Hemisphere sale. On a memorable evening at Riverside, four mares sold for a million or more, two of them selling for two million or more, and they were Maastricht Dam of Loving Gabby and dual Group 1 winning mare Srikandi while a further seven sold for $500,000 or more. Lot one, a trapeze artist breeding right for next season, made $105,000 for injured jockey Ty Angland, who was present at the sale with his wife Erin. The two days of select and general race fillies and brood mares averaged over $42,000 with a clearance rate of 76%. 
select weanlings average $36,000 with an 85% clearance. The four-day sale grossed almost $40 million. You'll find the full sales results and information on upcoming sales on inglis.com.au.